Is it the lady with the flu who sued the weatherman? Is it the average Joe who couldn't get the ladies while drinking beer? Or is it the bride-to-be who never was? One, two, or three. What do you think? Go ahead and hold, them, hold up your numbers. Okay, it was two. Two. This guy actually did sue Anheuser-Busch, but he did not win. Um, all the other people won, and I'm kind of glad that the gal won, because um, that guy sounds like a complete loser. Um, <laughs> But we're familiar with these stories of, of lawsuits and legal things, right? We all um, know the famous lady who spilled McDonald's coffee on herself and won $2.7 million. And these stories are ridiculous, and it makes these people sound crazy, and it makes our judicial system sound even more crazy for awarding them money for these things. And the passage we're going to look at today is very similar. The Christian church in Corinth uh, is having these silly lawsuits amongst each other. And they're not only breaking up the unity um, between each other, but they're also setting a really terrible example for people who are looking at this new way of living, this new Christian way of life as well. And before you start thinking, okay, this will be an easy one because I'm not involved in any Christian lawsuits, so I'm good to go. Um, like many things in scripture, there's the heart of the issue that, that we're actually getting to. And so while you may not be involved in a particular lawsuit at this point in time, my hope is to show you how each of us can kind of wrestle with this idea of unity amongst each other and how maybe some of the things that we do are just as frivolous or just as silly. So I'm going to start by reading the passage and then we're going to work our way through it. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. And I'm going to read from the New International Version. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. As we've been looking at uh, 1 Corinthians, we've been going through this bit by bit, and we've seen a lot of what Paul has been talking about. And while Paul has very specific problems with the Corinthian church, one of the things that we've seen is, is he's constantly attacking the, the identity that the Christians in Corinth are um, portraying, the way that they're living, not the specific actions, but who they are representing themselves to be. And so in this time, in, in, in verse, or chapter 6, verse 1, uh, Paul says, If you have a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Taking someone to court in this time period was a very common practice, especially with the Romans. They really, really liked their legal system. 
And so they were constantly suing each other to try to get an advantage. There were specific rules involved in this in the sense that you could not sue someone who was higher up than you. So a slave couldn't sue his master, an employee couldn't sue the employer, a manager couldn't sue the owner, son couldn't sue a father, or you had certain statuses in society and you were never allowed to sue up, which meant that you were always either suing someone who was less fortunate than you or suing someone who was equal so that you could have power over them. Now, the legal system was also very corrupt. Bribes were greatly, uh, graciously received by the judges. The judgment was not impartial. So what happened was whoever had more money could bribe the judge more, and they would win. And then the loser, who had less money to start with, would have to pay all the legal fees plus fines. And so it continued this, this fight of people trying to gain power over each other for frivolous lawsuits. Now, this doesn't apply to capital offenses. When we're talking about um, violence or murder or, or, or those types of things, um, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about issues of money, issues of land, and issues of power. Um, in fact, Paul in Romans actually encourages people to submit to the governing authorities and pay your taxes on Tuesday, right? Maybe you can rest knowing that you are following Paul's advice and dutifully paying your taxes and find some little amount of comfort in that. So these lawsuits were more civil cases, um, and they were people who were trying to grasp whatever they could or hold on to what they had tightly. And Paul says, you're acting just like the Romans. And he continues on in verse 2. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? And this verse links to a couple verses, one of them being in Daniel 7.18, talking about um, the, the, the future coming of God's kingdom. And it says this, But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And Jesus and the author of Revelation also reiterate this, this same point, that there's going to come a time where we are brought into the kingdom and we will be next to Christ serving, reigning, and judging uh, the world for it. And this is not just our future, but Paul is saying this is our right now. This is our present. The kingdom is both now and not yet. It is ever arriving, and the kingdom that we belong to as believers is already being fulfilled. So Paul's making an important point. Why not live now as you will live later? He's pointing out an important mistake that we often hear from the gospel. You see, we often reduce the gospel down to a who's in and, and who's out. Um, it's, it's about heaven and hell. And what happens is we reduce it to a type of fire insurance that, that has us avoiding hell and modifying behavior. And what this has done to our young people is really bad. Because now young people have this view, this, this lie in their life that says it's only wrong if I get caught. So play the scenario out. If it's only wrong if I get caught, and if I do bad things, I'm going to go to hell, then I have to lie about the bad thing that I just did, and I have to lie really well about it so that I don't get caught. Otherwise, I'm going to be scared. And so we give them two decisions. We say, change your actions and live in fear, or abandon the faith and do whatever feels right. And it's no surprise that our students don't want to live in fear because they're more concerned about heaven and hell. Instead, Paul admonishes the Corinthians, and by proxy us today, 
to live now as you will live later. The kingdom isn't going to come. It is coming, ever arriving. We've said it before. um, The contrast between heaven and hell doesn't happen very often in Scripture. The contrast between heaven and earth does. So how are we living? Are we living for the kingdom that we currently belong to, the kingdom of God that is ever coming? Or are we more worried about what's going on? So Paul says, why live for the things of this age when you could be living now in the riches that are coming? In verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Now, it's easy to get sidetracked on this because whenever the word angels pops up in Scripture, because it doesn't happen as often as we like to think it does, it makes us question things, right? For me, I go to Psalm 8, and I go where, where it says that we are made a little lower than the angels, I'm like, hey, so if we're a little lower than the angels, how do we judge the angels? But then I think that, well, in the Hebrew, the word for, that's often translated as angels is actually a name for God, Elohim. So perhaps Psalm 8 really says we're a little lower than God, and that means that angels are a little bit lower than us. And then, oh, there's that really fantastic story in Genesis 6 about the angels um, who get together with humans, and they create these big giants, right? Anyone? Just me? Okay. Um, <laughs> So I get sidetracked with that kind of stuff, and I, and I have to remember and I have to remind myself that Paul's using the angels as an example, okay? He's not saying, yes, you are going to rule, and the angels are going to be subject to you, because remember, this isn't about having power over somebody, and Paul has, has told us, don't seek power over, and I don't think that he's going to say, don't seek to have power over people, but you will have power over angels. Instead, it's a picture that if we are going to be able to, to deal with and discern the ethereal, heavenly things um, in the age to come, then how much more are we already able to discern and have wisdom in the things that we deal with with each other? We gain this ability because we have a helper. If you look at the relationship between the, the, the person of wisdom in the Old Testament and the person of Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, you'll find that they're really the same person. They're, they're one part, um, they're, they're two expressions um, of, of God in the Trinity, that third person in the Trinity. And so essentially what Paul is saying is you have wisdom because you have the Holy Spirit. Why not start using that? Why not start trusting what the, what the spirit that has been put inside of you instead of seeking outside counsel um, for things inside the church? Verse 4, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling for those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Because in the church, we have a very clear method um, of discerning disagreements and working through problems with each other. And this comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus lays this out. He says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. I think that last verse uh, 20 is really important 
to understand as we're going through disagreements. When two or three of us get together, even in the midst of a disagreement as believers, Christ is there with us. We have that presence of the Holy Spirit to help us mediate these issues. But it works out like this. Step one, talk about your problems privately. Don't drag people into the problem or gossip about it. Uh, whenever a student comes in and tells me they have a problem with, with someone, I always say, have you talked to this person yet? And if the answer is no, I say, well, you have two options then. You go talk to them or you get over it. Step two, if they say, yes, I've talked to the person, I say, well, have you taken anybody with you that agree that this is the problem? If they say no, I say, well, you have two options. You take a couple of people with you or you get over it. Step three, if multiple people have tried to talk to this person, then I usually recommend that uh, the three of us all sit down and we talk through it. And what I found um, in working with middle school students through their issues with each other is most often they're able to see how both of them were at fault in some way. They both recognize how they came across and they hurt the other person. They apologize, they offer forgiveness, and they often become better friends. And so if I was Paul writing this letter, I would probably phrase it, if middle schoolers can do this, why can't you? I'm glad you thought that was funny. <laughs> Verse five, he says, I say this to shame you, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Now, because of the education system in the day, um, it's kind of a rhetorical question to say, is there nobody wise enough among you? Uh, because of the system that was set up, there would be believers who were fully trained in the legal system. You wouldn't have to go to a secular judge or a secular lawyer to get a ruling on any kind of legal matter because there were people in the community that had the experience, that had the knowledge to do that. But Paul uses this word shame again, but he uses it in a different way. And at first, it seems like a contradiction, because in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, I am writing this not to shame you. And now he is saying, I say this to shame you. So what is Paul saying? Is he shaming us? Is he not? The problem is with language. And whenever you encounter language, specifically that of Greek, um, which nobody speaks this ancient Greek language anymore, people study it, but you can't go to Greece and be like, oh, you speak this ancient language in the same way that English has changed over time. And so words are constantly changing. We have to dig deep to figure out what are the people meaning by this. And shame is the way that Paul uses it throughout Corinthians um, is more in line with a common understanding of shame um, that research has come up with in the last 15, 20 years. And that shame is linked directly to identity. Shame has nothing to do with our actions or what we do. Shame has everything to do with who we are. And this is what Paul means. In this context, Paul is saying, this is not who you are. I say this to shame you, or I, I'm telling you, this is not who you are. It's knock it off. It reminds me, it's reminiscent of, of when I used to sit in front of my parents in church and they would flick my ear whenever I was messing around, right? That's not who you are. We don't act like that. So who are we? If we're not acting like who we are, who are we? And this is, this is a spoiler alert because I'm going to jump into Ryan's sermon for next week. Um, in verse 11 in this passage, it says this, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is who we are, sanctified, justified, washed by the Spirit of Jesus. And note, this is all past tense. 
This is something that has already been done. The work that Christ did on the cross is actually effective to make you an entirely new person, not subject to the sin nature of the world anymore. When Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. It's not a sign of defeat, but it is finished. It is a victory cry, something that says things have changed. So we have to start acting like it. And it may sound like I get a little angry because we're not acting like this, but I sit day after day, month after month, year after year, with kids who are terrified they're going to hell because they don't act right. Because that's the gospel that we have portrayed to them. That's the gospel that we show them by our lives. And so as long as I have a chance to to say it, I'm going to say what the gospel actually is and hope that it makes a difference. The gospel that says that God, as a loving ruler of the world, created the world and created us to rule the world underneath God. But as we all know, we've completely rejected that idea and we've tried to do it our own way. And the result is that God's not going to let our rebellion last forever and God's punishment for that rebellion is death and judgment. And that all sounds harsh, but because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus, having always lived under God's rule, was able to die in our place and take our punishment and bring forgiveness. And that's not all. God raises Jesus to life again as the ruler of the world. Jesus has conquered death, brings new life, and will one day return to judge. So which way do we want to live? Do we want to live in a way that we're just hoping that our good deeds are going to be enough? Or do we actually want to live as someone who has been redeemed and is also constantly being restored? Do you want to live as if Jesus' death actually meant something? Because if so, then the result is forgiveness and eternal life. And by the way, that eternal life starts now and then also lasts forever. That's the gospel. And by the way that we choose to interact, especially with each other, we set an example for the rest of the world. What's so different about following Jesus in this life? Verse 6, But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Paul expands the notion of family to the church here. Many families are messed up. Hearts in this room is no different. People are watching. Specifically, people are watching for believers to mess up. People want a reason to say, see, you're no better than anybody else. What makes your Christianity so special? What makes us different is that we are willing to be taken advantage of for the sake of the gospel. Verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged why not rather be cheated? Or as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 39-40, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt over your coat as well. So you need a volunteer for this next part. You got, you got it? All right, come on up. So, Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, <laughs> turn to him the other cheek. And this is a cultural thing that we don't understand. So, for the sake of argument, let's just pretend that we're all right-hand dominant, and you lefties, I know, are getting left out again, but it's okay. All right? This is a cultural thing. For, for me to be able to slap someone on the right cheek, I have to backhand. 
okay? Me, if I'm using my dominant hand to slap someone on the right cheek, I have to backhand. <laughs> and to do that is not necessarily a symbol of violence as much as it is a symbol of complete disrespect, of putting the person down. Thank you for your help. I appreciate that. So this example fits what Jesus says in, in, this, in this realm of, of Corinthians constantly trying to gain power over people. They are trying to disrespect people, not necessarily to cause violence. Jesus is getting a word out about revenge or getting even. He says, don't do it. Don't get revenge. Don't get even. If someone disrespects you, just let them do that. But please hear this. This is not a discourse against self-defense, especially in the case of abuse. This is not what Jesus is saying, right? If you're in an abusive relationship, um, you, you, you do not have to take it. You do not have to stay there. And if you need help, there are people here that will help you. But what Jesus is saying is to allow yourself to be disrespected, cheated even, without retaliating. He doesn't say, don't get mad. He says, don't get even. Jesus says, if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. And this is significant because in the Old Testament law, you weren't actually allowed to keep someone's coat overnight. In a sense, Jesus is saying, if they want one thing, give it all to them. I don't really understand that part of this passage. And I'm not convinced that many commentators understand it either. What I do know is Jesus' example in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where Paul explains, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is that Jesus literally took his hands that were holding on to his ability to be God, the supreme creator and controller and sustainer of the entire world, and let it all go and became willing to be taken advantage of to understand what we go through, and to take our punishment. So Paul finishes and says, Instead, you yourself cheat and you do wrong. You do this to your brothers and sisters. He finishes this particular discourse by saying that instead of living like this Christ you claim to follow, you're actually cheating your own family. You're living as if people, you aren't living as the people you've been made to be. And so I want to close with a, a personal story. Um, and this is not a, a look how good I am and how good I do this. Um, because this story actually involves a lot of significant pain in my life, a lot of anger. Um, some of this only people closest to me actually know. But I want to share it because for me, it's the most powerful personal experience that I can relate to this passage and how we can be the people that God has called us to be. Years, years ago, I was in a really tough job. It was tough because the work environment was, was fairly hostile. Um, I, was, I was berated for a lot of little tiny things. Uh, I was lied to, made promises that um, never came about. 
Um, and it began to affect my health, and it began to affect my marriage. I was 30 pounds heavier back then than I am now, um, and I was really scared that my marriage wasn't going to survive. So Aubrey and I decided to apply Matthew 18 um, and dedicated a year to prayer and reconciliation. And so I met with the people who, were, who I felt were wronging me, and they didn't want to listen. And so I, I, I talked to a couple other people, and, and together we said, like, look, this is really wrong, and they didn't want to listen. So finally, I took the final step of Matthew 18, and I invited um, someone um, in, in senior leadership to come in and be a part of a meeting with, with myself and my employer. And the end result of that meeting was my resignation was announced. I applied Matthew 18, and it didn't work out. For years, I was angry. I was shaking whenever I would see people from that old job, especially if I saw my former boss. My confidence was shot. I was a shell of who I once was. As the years dragged on, I began to call it what it was, shame. I wasn't living into the person I was created to be. And little by little, day by day, month by month, year by year, I began to listen to better voices in my life and become the person that I believe God desired for me to be. I lost weight because of it. Um, I became more active. I got a new job where I, that I'm in now and that I'm immensely valued and appreciated. And I have a healthy marriage, at least as healthy as it can be with a 15-month-old monopolizing all of your time. <laughs> a few months ago, I walked into church and I saw my former boss. And I, and I know Aubrey expected me to turn around and just go home. But I saw the communion table. And as a reminded how Paul says, don't drink in a manner unworthy and, and, and go and, and, and fix the things between you and someone else before you take communion. So before communion, I walked up to my former boss and we had a moment where we both confessed our wrongs to each other. He even told me that I was a victim in all of this, but I didn't hold on to that because I knew that there were still things that I could apologize for and ask forgiveness for. We prayed together. We shared communion together. And in that moment, all my anger and resentment was gone. We hung out later that week like we were old friends. It's hard for me to describe what this has done for my life. Um, even though I had gotten over the hurt initially, this has dramatically changed how I sense spirit working in my life and how I interact with others. It was like a hindrance had literally been lifted off of me. I don't let things fester anymore. I'm quick to admit my faults and conflict, and I'm quick to seek reconciliation. And I've had some really neat experiences because of that. And I don't stand up here claiming to know anything about the pain that you have gone through. This is my pain. This is my story. And I realize that every story is different, and there are probably some relationships out there that aren't going to be restored. So please don't mishear me on those matters. What I have to offer you is my own experience of freedom in a painful, freedom from a painful experience. But much more than that, what I have to offer you today is the gospel that tells you that because of the work that Christ has already done, you stand forgiven, redeemed, and meant to live for so much more. Let's pray.